Hello, and welcome to the Real Tech, Real Life podcast, a conversational medley with four women who've been there, done that, and lived to tell about it. So let's get episode number four underway. I'm Lori Williams, and we've got the whole rest of the crew here, Lori Asbury, Miriam Neruzzi, and Andrea Giametti. And we're continuing on in our series about the life cycles of professional services firms. We've started with lead to order, and we'll go from lead to order to scope to delivery to order to cash and then hire to retire. And so today we're on our third in the series on lead to, lead to order, talking about the exciting topic of change orders. Before we get into the meat of the episode, just want to remind everybody to, if you have any questions or suggestions for other topics, to go to our website, realtechreallife.com. Drop us an email, comment on the blog, whatever you want to do. We've had some good feedback already. Would love to uh, to hear from you and look forward to covering those topics in an upcoming episode. I'll kick this off with uh, the I, kind of a very broad question. Uh, but, you know, the, the phrase change order strikes fear in lots of people's hearts. So uh, I guess, you know, Miriam, let me start with you, because I think uh, you, you've dealt with this as much as anybody. How how do SIs typically approach a change order or a change in scope or budget? Hmm. I, I don't know if there's a typical way, uh, but I will say that it depends on the customer's t- it depends on the nature of the engagement. Uh, I personally do like to exercise the first change order fairly quickly just because I want to test it out, to see <laughs> the customer's tolerance to it, uh, to see how they react. But then after that, I'm not a big fan of like, oh, you changed this word. Let me go ahead and do a change order. Um, so um, I, I think there's a, you know, like with anything else, um, project delivery, project management is a relationship building thing. Uh, we all know if you go too much on one side, uh, change order the customer to death, that's not good for uh, any kind of a customer relationship. But at the same time, you got to set the precedent that there is a contractual thing, there's a contractual agreement in place, uh, and changes that are material should be memorialized in a change order. How do you, if you're talking about that from, a, we talked in the last episode about capacity, how do you handle a change order when it's just capacity? That's a great question. Um, I think uh, that's why when, I, when we talked about uh, in the last episode about statement of work, how I like the statement, uh, the, uh, the statement of work to at least capture the original intent of what the customer wants to do with that capacity. Um, one of the things is that if, the customer decides to do something different. If the capacity goes towards something that was not planned for, that's to me a clear change order. Um, timeline changes. If the customer's initial capacity-based model was around hey, you getting the work done by June 30th, but changes in, uh, in the customer situation requires the project to be extended from a timing perspective until September 30th. That's another material change uh, because capacity is obviously driven by the timelines. If the timeline extends, then that's uh, another um, change order. So typically, I would say having some framework around what the original 
intent of the capacity was meant for, and if there's deviations from it, and then as well as when there's timeline changes, those would be the two primary areas that I would say a change order is very valid. Uh, because obviously, if you have, if you do have a capacity-based model, minor modif you know, modifications to what the work is doesn't really warrant to a, uh, a full-blown change order. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I Andrea, as you um, have thought, you know, the past, uh, well, all the, the contracts that you've helped write, are there things that you do in the contracts to sort of tee it up so it makes it an easier, or a uh, easier is the wrong word, but maybe a cleaner conversation? Um, not necessarily, because generally, if you're trying, you know, from an SI perspective, you're trying to get a deal closed and get through the sales cycle and win it, change orders don't appear as to great things. Um, I, I think the only thing that from a scoping perspective is going back to is thinking about the assumptions again. Um, and, you know, being very clear with assumptions and even to the level where sometimes they're just boundaries so that it opens it up that, like I said, not necessarily that we're going to nickel and dime the client if the assumption absolutely isn't met, but it gives the project team kind of that ability to, um, to take it back and say, hey, this, you know, here's what's in the contract, here's what we actually have to do. Um, but I, I, I think that's at least all that's coming to me that, that uh, is kind of relevant to change orders. Yeah, One of the other things that um, I think can be very powerful is this idea of the zero dollar change order. So to Miriam's point, you certainly don't want to um, put a lot of overhead into, you know, really, um, you know, documenting every single little change. But I think there are times in this ongoing relationship for whatever reason that there are changes that don't, um, that, that, that you want to make sure that you've documented so that you're on the same page. But there, but it doesn't necessarily change the, um, the, the dollars. And so a zero dollars change order is something that, that um, might come up as well. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think it's a really powerful tool. Can you give, do you have any examples of where you might use a, a zero dollar change order? I mean, it's usually a replacement of scope, right? I mean, if you take out something and they, you know, you know, originally X scope was in, but they've decided they don't need that, but instead they want to use that time and effort towards Y, right? Um, I mean, that's one good example. So just so you have documented, okay, that you say that it's okay, we're not going to do this, which is in the contract. We're instead going to do this. It's an even match. So. Would you ever do a negative change order? Depends on the contract, right? Because if it's a T&M contract in theory, um, I've never done one, so I'm thinking out loud here, but I, you know, it's T&M, you come in under budget, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a good question. Maybe somebody has a better answer. I've never seen it in real life either. <laughs> uh, you typically don't give money back because, Typically, you tend to grow into how much money you have, right? From a, uh, a <laughs> so I, I have never, yeah, from a budget standpoint, it doesn't seem to, at least I have not experienced, I mean, we tend to grow into whatever money that you have because there's always changes uh, in a project that is unaccounted for, things take longer. I mean, that's why software is a, um, it's not a science, uh, it, it's, it's an art. It's, yeah, uh, I mean, that, it's an art. Yeah, I mean, that being said, though, you know, I, I do think, you know, we have a history of projects that do come in under budget, but I think, you know, the difference is we actually don't write a change order in order to, 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 
to um, to do that, right? That it's it's specifically around a TNM, so you haven't built for it yet. Um, I haven't seen an example where the customer's already paid and we've come in under budget and then have to have a contract vehicle to get it back. Right. Yeah, and then it's also probably becomes a little bit more on the order of cash side as well. I mean, I guess the two pieces there are. Uh, uh, credit memos and and uh, mm. uh, and internal goodwill, um, but right. uh, actually, I asked that question kind of randomly because I never really thought about it. Um, but you're right; it, it it's not something that you would see very often. What um, it, we've all been in situations where either we've inherited a project or uh, maybe the project's had has is kind of, sort of become a bit of a of, of uh, a spaghetti bowl, and we've had to deconstruct budgets. And figure out, um, you know, how much is really left and how much isn't. Uh, I think it's a very difficult thing to do, and I'd be curious to know if, if you guys have any uh, any formula that you use to approach it, or you know, if, if you walk into a situation and and the budget is very convoluted, and you know that the team is over, um, but you're not quite sure how much. How where do you even start to unravel that? <laughs> My start could be a call to Andrea <laughs> and sharing a Google Doc. We've been here. <laughs> she gives me this crazy Google Doc with her thoughts in it that I then transform to an actual financial, you know, metrics form. This is and we so find out yin that yang. you guys just, I mean, you are like, you complete each other. We do. Oh, yes. No, she comes up with some crazy thing and it's got like some, you know, random thoughts in it with some numbers that she pulled out of somewhere and... <laughs> I take it and break it down to hours and rates and timeline and costs and scope and try to figure out where we're at. And, and, and then she does, she does an amazing job of taking it back to the customer and explaining it, right? So, well, that's yeah, what that's, I was going to say. Then I put the story together. And. That's her strength. Is, you know, by that point, she's charmed the customer so much and the customer loves her and they're great friends is that she can now take this really you know, not so great message back. I'm not as good at that piece, but I can make – I can. The spreadsheet piece, man, I can. You are can hell make on wheels with a spreadsheet. I can attest to oh, that. Oh, boy. <laughs> somebody has to be. <laughs> Miriam, how, how would you coach somebody through that? I know you've, you know, as you've managed the PMs and the EMs and, and kind of built governance, governance processes, uh, it, this has come up repeatedly. Where do you start with somebody that doesn't know how to do it? It's a tough one, especially, I mean, I think the easier, easier part is to figure out based on your average weekly burn rate, where you are with respect to duration um, and budget and when the expected end date of the project is, right? I mean, that's going to be a pretty easy, easy mathematical formula to be able to come up with something, okay, I forecast to be done at this point in time, and then that's how much it's going to cost me. I think what's harder is if you want to, figure out, okay, if it's, a, it's really a project that's gone uh, sideways, try to figure out, okay, well, how much have I really done uh, during this time, right? I mean, because that's always a hard one to answer. Like, am I 50% done? Am I 100%? I mean, am I 80% done? Am I less than that? I think that's a harder one to get to if you're coming into a project net new, because um, oftentimes it's not a very easy answer to get. Like, how far along are you, really? Because that should play a role. Because even you may you think I'm I'm ending the project on X and you know X date uh, based on how much work it's remaining. Can you in fact forecast when you think you're going to be ending with the scope that's out there? Uh, so I think that's a that's a harder part to fix because that requires a little bit of a art and science and some magic in there to come up with. Because ultimately all of these are guesses 
guesstimates, but you want it to be based on some intelligent uh, factors. Uh, but I think the, 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 one of the biggest things I used as we managed the period portfolio was how the burn rate was dollar-wise as compared to time. Right. Uh, if you're 50% of the project, I would expect that you've spent about 50%. If you're running low, then my, get, my question would have been, what's going on? Are we behind? If not, it's a good problem to have. Uh, it's not always a good thing to, all, to be burning less because the customer could be unavailable. There's, there's reasons why that could happen. Uh, but if you're burning um, hotter and if you're burning faster than planned, then that's another problem. That's a flag. That's a risk uh, area for someone to be watching over. Are we, why are we burning faster? Are we trying to front load the work uh, or not? So it, those were metrics that I would use as a way of trying to figure out where the project health might be to help the PMs and EMs uh, fine tune or by, based on the answers that they would give me kind of gives an indication of where they might be and if there's an actual problem or just the data is telling us but there's a story behind it. Yeah, I think um, one of the hardest things if you're walking into a situation is, and sometimes even when you've been in it for too long, is establishing a baseline that everybody agrees to. I mean, I think that's the hard part is you may know that you're going to be burning hot down the road. Um, you may even be, know you're burning hot today, but agreeing where you are today, not on a dollar standpoint, but an actual deliverable standpoint with a customer can be really difficult. <laughs> and, you know, I think the that's one piece of the puzzle. And, and it's you, you can't just go through it and look at it budgetarily. You have to get the customer buy-in when you feel like things are going off the rails. Um, you have to get an, an agreed-to baseline as early as possible. Now, ideally, you've had that baseline throughout the whole project. But if you'd had that, you probably wouldn't have gone off the rails, right? So <laughs> you have to come in and reestablish baseline. And then I love what you said about the, the forward-looking burn um, you know, using uh, tools uh, like our cloud management center we used at Aperio and others that allow you to uh, determine the the sprint velocity. Um, you know, how many story points are you going to burn? What is what? You know, different customers have different throughput, um, and trying to come up with those metrics. You have the luxury of doing that on larger projects, which also ultimately probably have more risk in some ways. But on shorter projects, it's really different, uh, difficult because you don't know. You just don't have that that shared history together. Um, and so I think my um, my next question is is really along those lines, and that is, do you think this is easier or harder or different or the same on agile projects versus maybe the old school water pro uh, waterfall projects that you might have worked on in the past? Um. What do you mean by this? Uh, I'm this? sorry. Uh, do you think that managing change orders is is different in an agile environment as opposed to a waterfall environment? Um, yes, because of the definition that goes along with uh, a waterfall project. A waterfall project tend to draw lines around things. I think what they discount is the fact that things change. There is no adaptability. Adapt adaptation comes via the form of, okay, well, you said this, but now it's this. Well, I need to go ahead and have a change order to capture that. With Agile, there is a bit of a, and actually I love, I personally love the concept that we introduced at the period, the notion of an exchange order, uh, because not everything is about a change. Change implies something change. Exchange allows you another vehicle to introduce something that's changed without 
a dollar impact. Uh, and I think it, 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 it's a horse trading that happens uh, that oftentimes you don't have a name for it. But if you go ahead and talk about a concept of a change order, exchange order, it gives the customer a different uh, sense. And I oftentimes I've seen that the customer is a just a, a lot more um, uh, welcoming of that because the change order for some customers is a negative connotation. Oh, it's great. You started change ordering me to this. You know, you sold me this. Now you're going to change order me. But then introducing the notion of an exchange order kind of gives them another way of getting what they need, but it comes at a cost of them to, you know, deciding what they don't want to do. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely the difference between the two, but um, I love the labeling of the exchange order that we, that we introduced. I've seen it really be successful with customers and it puts them at a better place that they don't, the hostility is not as much when you talk about an exchange order versus an exchange order. I like that. And also, I think too, as Lori pointed out earlier, if you introduce zero change dollars early on, or zero change orders early on, it does get you in the discipline of thinking about, okay, what are we, what are we trading out? Which, which makes sense. Right. <laughs> Lori, if you, um, cause I know you probably, we've all been in this situation, but do you coach a team differently? If you feel like you're, uh, if you're on a project that's off the rails and maybe you don't know exactly, you don't have an agreed to baseline with a customer, do you coach a team to deliver differently during that phase or do you even, do they even need to be aware? Absolutely. No, I, I think they're the ones on the ground and I think they're the most aware as much as you can pr- put a protective bubble around them. And I think Miriam does this so well and so effectively is really being able to sort of shield and, and protect and really saying, hey, no, no, that's not your um, uh, issue to deal with. But I think even when you do that, it, it becomes apparent, I think. And so you need to address that head on. And I think the biggest thing is to make sure that you build in ample space to provide that support and coaching and just a time for the, the project team to be able to vent, right? To, to be able to talk about what's really going on and uh, share the, the, the challenges and frustrations and fears, um, I think it just takes up a little bit more time during those, those periods of time. And then if you, can, if you can diffuse that, then you can really focus on what it takes to go forward rather than just having to deal with this sort of very reactive environment all of the time. So trying to separate those things out a little bit. Which is a difficult line to draw, but um, right. I, I agree it's very important. The, the other thing in terms of coaching, the, the other thing in terms of coaching is, is really to remind folks to over communicate during this period that, that we can't go into a hole, we can't ignore things that are happening and hope that it goes away, that this is the time to really step up. And it might be uncomfortable at first, but the more you get into that cadence, the, the um, easier it gets and, and the better that it, the better outcome that you'll have. Yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer in projects that go off the rails. They go off the rail in the first week, and people mm-hmm. just don't want it. I mean, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, mm-hmm. but they go off the rail very early, and people don't want to admit it. And I think you have to build a culture. This goes to a cultural thing with both the customer mm-hmm. and on the project team where bad news early. Um, if you mm-hmm. try to shove it under, you know, you, you kind of shove it under the covers there, by the time you're willing to talk about it, it it's – 10 times worse than, than it should have been. But it's really hard to do when you're new in a relationship with a customer. Um, yeah, I was going to say, how do, you, how do you do that with, and balance that 
you know, where you don't come in as the, the nervous Nelly to the customer and you're kind of building that relationship and, and they've hired you to be responsible and oftentimes their job's on the line, right? Because they've taken a chance at bringing you in. Um, here, I'm asking the questions, but any tips for like... <laughs> That's why you, you and Lori make such a great team. You give them the facts and she makes them feel good about them. I mean, how, yeah, so, but how do you come in there? I mean, when it's something obvious, yes, but if it's just kind of risk management and things, how do you balance that early on with the customer to build a relationship that doesn't, you know, freak them out? Well, and so, I mean, I think that one of the biggest things is to be able to sort of have your plan of attack before you go to the customer. And I think by surfacing those and saying, hey, you know, just want to make sure that we're on the same page and really talking through it, but also giving them the confidence that you've already thought, <clears throat> you've already thought through it and you trust them enough to share it with them. And this is the way forward. I think all those pieces are necessary rather than just coming in and saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm really worried about this. We got to we got to we got to keep our eye on it. I think it's really in having that communication, that trust and the way forward. I think um, and actually that's yeah. a, go ahead, Miriam. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And as you were talking, I mean, to me, the vehicle is that status report. I, I, I'm a firm believer that, I mean, it, to me, it's the right place to set the stage for the importance of status report. Because everything that you said, Lori, about not only um, kind of capturing whatever risk that might be there, the mitigation plans, things that you're going to do about it, and it becomes a real document. All of a sudden, it becomes something like, I'm not just blurting out it something that's happened on a project. Uh, but guess what? Going forward, this document, the status report, is in fact capturing everything that's going on in the project. Sky's not falling just because there's a risk stated, uh, because there is a plan in place to want to mitigate it. But this is for your awareness, so that way there's visibility, there's no hiding, there is no um, surprises uh, at the end. I think that's such a great point to make sure that you have that documentation and that that accountability and that traceability. And, you know, I know we've all been in situations where you come in and you try to deconstruct what's happened and you look, that's one of the first places you look and invariably you'll find gaps in those project reports. And, and you know, that's, that's never a good place to be. I, I would modify what you said a little bit, though, in terms of that being the vehicle for those discussions. I think it, it's a way of codifying that and, and making sure that you document it. But I've also learned over time that it's so important to, especially as you're building up those trust relationship with the key stakeholders, to give them a heads up first, to talk through it with them. And so the vehicle is really sort of your relationship and, and sort of maybe even an offline conversation. And then the status report is, by the time they see that, it's, oh, yeah, we already discussed that. I knew it was coming sort of thing. Yeah, you kind of yeah, soften the blow, soften the beach, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that, that, it's interesting because I've kind of experimented with that a little bit and the way I, I do it, I have actually scheduled a time uh, with the customer um, to actually go through the status report with them. So and the night before the meeting, I send the status report out. I uh, typically highlight certain mm -hmm. areas. Hey, mm -hmm. this has changed, uh, but I look forward and basically my note, I typically say, I look forward to discussing with you in more details tomorrow. So they have a chance to take a look at it. They can come prepared with their questions. So it's a little bit of a different uh, sequence of activities. Mm -hmm. But then when I go into the meeting, um, I'm prepared to discuss what's new and what's being done, what I expect them, what would I need them to do. So I think 
um, uh, totally agree the idea of surprise or uh, I didn't mean to imply that status report should become the only way because it's, it's, an, it's a very passive it's, it's, it's way to get it's your baseline. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's a baseline. It's documented, but then supporting it with a conversation, whether it's before or after. But uh, I tend to belabor it a little bit with the customer, but they understand. They take the status report seriously because they know it's really what they're going to be discussing and they're going to be drilling in, especially in the areas that I tend to highlight. So it, 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 it depends. I think every customer can be different. I mean, you guys are too good because you've, you're now taking us into our episode number six. We're going to talk about episode five <laughs> in a second. Um, but uh, this does start to now get into, as we talk about scope to delivery, you know, the uh, uh, episode number six is going to be about uh, really how do you kick off the project the right way? How do you make sure it's matched uh, to to the scope? Uh, how do you onboard the team? Um, and then as we go forward, talking about how do you status and, and how do you manage uh, that part of the delivery. So you guys per- per- set up that up perfectly, but really exciting is uh, episode number five, which will be featuring Lori Asbury talking about mindfulness at work. So we're excited about that one uh, upcoming uh, in, in as we uh, continue on with this, this th- the work part of our series. So now let's, let's go into our, our lightning round. Uh, the first question I have for you guys on the lightning round is uh, how do you leave it at work? And the reason, let me tell you the, let me frame this. I think the most, some of the most stressful situations that, you know, I deal with it, have dealt with at work, either involve, involve, uh, involve employee situ- issues or customer budget conversations. I mean, there are other things as well, but those, you know, I think if you kind of categorize those two buckets tend to be the biggest. So how do you leave it at work? How do you leave that stress at work and, and go on and, and have a, have a good evening and doesn't involve so- gin tonic? <laughs> yeah, so so my strategy can't involve gin and tonic, so, <laughs> so I'll start. <laughs> um, you know, I think for me, uh, it goes back to having a plan for how to move forward. <clears throat> and it goes back to the the uh the checklist that we talked about, starting our day with a checklist and and invariably your day is going to blow up and the things that you have to deal with are not the things that you had written down. But when something stressful happens and it's really taking over your focus and it's time to leave for the day, for me, I tend to think about, okay, what are the things that I'm going to do to to get this back under control or just take the next step, do the next right thing the next day? So that's where that planning and thinking ahead helps me just sort of leave it. Okay, I've got the plan, so I don't have to ruminate about it all night. How about you, Adria? I think, yeah, I mean, I, I've become better about separating out kind of work. I mean, the areas I think I've become better at are, and Miriam and I've had this conversation a lot, is shutting it down for like vacations and weekends because I just know that one doesn't do any good to, you know, keep it in your head and all of these, and I just need to shut down. I need to turn it off and focus on, my other life, I mean, and my life. Um, so I'm pretty good about kind of shutting it out, you know, vacations and weekends and not looking at email. Um, actually, that's kind of one of the biggest things is when you shut it off, you have to shut it off and not because the minute you look, open your phone and look at an email that reminds you of a topic that you're frustrated at or any of these kinds of things that set you off and then it's going in your head and all of these. So, I mean, I think those areas of just turning it off, not looking at my email, not looking at the work stuff, um, but that said, that doesn't mean that if I've 
got something that, you know, I know I've got a really difficult call in the morning and things like that. It's still pretty hard to, to turn it all the way off. Right. I think we all stress about it. And some of it's, I think just as you get older and realize what's important in life and, you know, we're, we're not doctors. Nobody's going to die if our project goes <laughs> off the rails. Right. Most <laughs> of the time. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, so focusing on in the evenings on my family and all this and knowing I'm going to have a stressful call in the morning and you know, it is what it is. Uh, you know, I don't have a great, I don't have the mindfulness that I need probably to manage that. But I do say I have used that term. Nobody's going to die. Well, we're all going to learn how to be mindful and, and be mindful next next time. So uh, we're just going to help us. Uh, and then I go for a run. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and try not to have it run through my head and let's do a good podcast so that I don't think about it. <laughs> Miriam, how about you as you drink your gin and tonic? Uh, I'm pretty bad. I haven't figured it out. I think I've been trying to figure it out for the past 20 years. I don't think I have. Uh, I want to say that the past two vacations that I've taken in the past 10 years, or at least for the past 20 some years that I've been working, the first time that I actually turned email off. Uh, but I, I, I'm, so I'm not very good. I haven't yet. Re- I know. I'm getting there, Andrea. <laughs> I'm getting there. I just wish I was as good a place as at least, well, you guys, I think Andrea and Lori, you guys are much more further along than I am in my uh, um, kind of ability to be able to separate out. And I think typically when I'm having a bad day, when I'm having a bad week, it carries it. I carry it with me and my family knows. And that kind of makes it hard for them. It's been a tough year. Um, but uh, I'm working on it. And I think all this stuff helps. I think maturity helps, kind of growing a bit older and wiser and knowing what's important, reminding myself. But uh, I'm not there yet. I think I've got work to do. I think it's also harder when you work from home because you don't leave it at at the office. There literally isn't an office to leave it in. Definitely. Um, And it's, you know, I think uh, uh, trying to separate out, um, I mean, not to get too compartmentalized, but I work in my office. Um, I don't work in the rest of the house for the most part. And, you know, trying to create that, I guess, I guess I'm physical that way, but, um, it makes a difference. And for me, I said earlier on the podcast yesterday or the, the, sorry, the last one that, uh, I work out at night and, and that actually helps me because if I'm on a treadmill, I can't think about anything but being on the treadmill cause I know I'm going to fall off. So, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it goes back, I used to, to ride horses a lot. And I think, um, it, coincidentally, I was probably doing my most aggressive riding around the time that I started managing people. Um, and uh, so I learned a lot from that. Uh, uh, first of all, about, you can't control people. You know, it's like horses. You can't control a horse. You have to kind of guide them to do what you want to do when the you know, horse weighs 10 times more than you do. But, but more importantly, um, you know, if you're, if you're, I was playing polo cross at the time and, um, you can't think about anything else but just surviving. Um, and so having an activity uh, that forces you to really have to focus on something else makes a difference, whether it be you know playing, playing in a band or um, running or whatever. I think that helps. Of course, I, you can't do that every day. I do think the occasional glass of wine um, might help uh, release a little bit or green tea uh, for those that, that prefer <laughs> the green tea or, or protein smoothie. <laughs> Um, don't even don't even try. I'm in a former camp. No, I was gonna be appreciative of her efforts in that area to be inclusive. I've been in both camps, the drinker and the non-drinker. And, uh, yeah, no, I've had so. I've had green tea with vodka in it. It works well. But 
Of course you have. Wow, I've never tried that before. Actually, I'm not sure I have, but uh, may, I may do that this afternoon. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, let me know what it is. I'm sure this part is getting cut off, but yeah. I don't know. This is probably the better part. People might like this. Exactly. The, um, but I, I think, too, uh, yeah, I think you go through cycles in life um, where mm-hmm. sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's because you've got more on the line, right? Um, for whatever reason on, on what the job is. And I also do firmly believe that it's easy to lose perspective. Uh, you just get, and I'm bad at this, you just get caught up in, I love to fight fires, and I get caught up in the fire and add another fire and add another fire. And then, you know, you get two months into something and you realize I, none of that really mattered. Um, there were other things that really did, that should have mattered, whether it be personal or work. Um, but you have to keep reminding yourself of that. And that's why I'm really, Lori, not to to build this up too much on the hype side, but I do think this is where mindfulness comes in, right? Um, And forcing Mm -hmm. yourself to sit down. And uh, uh, I've been trying to to work with, I don't know if you guys ever use the Headspace app. Um, Oh, yes. But I'm trying. I've many times gotten... A month into the Headspace app, and then I forget about it for six yeah. months. And then I try again. And I get annoyed because it buzzes me on my watch every morning to, to do it. Me and too. I... I totally agree with you. I think it's an awesome, awesome thing. I just can't seem to find through the practice. So, yes, I'm looking forward to it, Lori, too. <laughs> Such pressure, which is a little weird when we're talking about mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to us to create a stressful environment around mindfulness, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Now Miriam's going to have it on her task list. If she doesn't do it, she's going to be all stressed out. No, I've had a couple of gin and tonics. I'm good. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, gosh. So uh, uh, two more questions before we kind of wrap this down. The uh, the next question is um, along the same lines, but uh, tying it back to work a little bit, and that is we all have been accountable for, for large teams. How do you take a team that's in uh, what we might call in the technology world a death march or you know, a really stressful situation? How do you and, – and, and teams don't perform well when, when it's just this constant beating. How do you take a team that's in a situation like that and help them, um, you know, kind of leave it at work as a team as well. Um, what do you do to bond a team that's in, in a situation like that? Gin and tonic is an appropriate answer, I think. <laughs> well, I think uh, in order to you, for you to have the gin and tonic, team outings are great. Uh, I think physically being together, doing something together, I think um, it, it's really helpful. Um, I think... Oftentimes, uh, it's the human relationships that come into play when things get tough. Uh, are you there for someone? You can't necessarily take away the complexity of the problem or the customer or any of those. But are you there? Can you commiserate? Can you have the empathy? Uh, I think misery wants company, likes company. So I think if you think that way, to me, those are the ways that I would say um, you can try to bring a team together and help each other to get through a tough situation. I think that, I, I agree. I think that's also why women tend to be better at leading project teams, program teams, uh, because there is that uh, compassion. I think compassion matters. Um, mm-hmm. And compassion doesn't have to be soft, right? It, I think it, it actually can be can be pretty powerful, very powerful, um, and be a strong asset, but I think it gets a bad rap. Lori, you're shaking your head. I am. You know, I love hearing you articulate that. I think, and, and I loved what Miriam said about it coming down to the relationships. And if you 
um, walk through the situation in a compassionate, supportive way, um, then I think it makes all the difference in the world. I think any time that you also have a way to bring humor into a situation. So, um, you know, if you can find ways of coming together and blowing off steam and just sharing laughs, I think that's helpful. And so Miriam mentioned the outing. I know with, with virtual teams, it's not always easy to do it. We had a, a project team where we had uh, a project that was supposed to take six months. Uh, we had a change in the executive sponsor. He came in right before go live and uh, completely changed that baseline. Um, folks, our, our project sponsors were really worried about losing their jobs. Um, so it became very stressful on all sides. And we had by that point already sort of formed our relationships. Um, and when it got heated, we were able to find ways of still doing the work. Uh, but for example, every Friday, we were doing daily stand-up. So we were meeting with each other every day for a year and a half. And um, every Friday, we would do a free-form status report. So we would come up with crazy, silly ways of doing our statuses to each other. So one was uh, we did haikus. <clears throat> we had to give our status in haiku. And that particular meeting, that's where I had to ask for a change order. Now, my customer knew it was coming, but I officially asked for the change order in haiku format. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That may be a first. That is definitely a first. <laughs> it was definitely a highlight. Um, we did, you know, it's we recorded, we, isn't it? You at, what's we, that? We it's recorded. recorded. That's right. <laughs> they said it to me because I was the EM on this project and I thought she'd lost her mind. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. And, you know, obviously that was an unusual sort of over the top um, example. And it was something that only worked because we had that strong relationship with the customer. Um, but I think it does highlight, again, the need to, to bond and focus on those relationships and uh, um, have fun as much as, as you can. And by the way, I think you may have buried the lead for this episode. We should have called it How to Ask for a Change Order in Haiku. Uh, <laughs> that that should, have been, should have been at the top. Um, all right. <laughs> so the, uh, the last question for everybody is uh, one TV show recommendation. This is us. Really? You like it? I love it. What's so great about it? I don't know. I think the characters are highly relatable. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a show that, first of all, it's got multiple storylines, which is great. It's a little bit of uh, something for everybody. And um, I, I truly think that the characters do a great job portraying their lives. And uh, uh, for some reason, I find every one of the characters relatable in one way or the other um kind of a little bit of a crying a little bit of laughing <laughs> just feeling good i think he's got all of the above i even got chris bell hooked on it he was iming me back and forth he was following on the set of episodes at some point he even threatened to stop friending me if such a, if one of the characters died and then the character survived he texted me would that be awkward if I had unfriended you, right, Miriam? Like, <laughs> I love that. I had the funniest exchange with Belle. I love this But honestly, I, I think it's a, it's a feel-good um, show, um, and there's good acting, too, and a good storyline. I mean, what else can you ask for? 
Yeah, I, I I've only seen one or two episodes. It's one of those I know I'll binge if I ever start. So I haven't haven't gotten to it yet. But I like to do a, a season at a time. So I love your recommendation. That's 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 good. Uh, how about how about you, Andrea? Yeah, I I've seen a few episodes of that as well. My husband watches it and enjoys it. I have not been watching anything like actively. I'm not into any like true drama shows or, or regular shows right now. So the only thing that popped in my head, because every time it's on, we seem to have it on the TV is Big Bang Theory. <laughs> I literally <laughs> think I have seen every episode of Big Bang Theory probably six times. Well, I'm convinced the that point. in every country in the world, uh, in the hour, the top of the hour, Big Bang Theory is throwing is, is showing somewhere. It's, oh, it is. Totally. So it's what gets turned on the TV, like when we have the TV on, you know, in the background here. Um, and, you know, originally we would laugh because we you know compare my younger my older son to Sheldon which he's not and doesn't like that comparison but about two um four no maybe four years ago my husband and kids gave me the big bang theory game for mother's day um <laughs> my comment was which I've seen it on Facebook now was apparently the stores were out of well everything <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Like, because I was not like a fan of the show or anything. We just watch it. And uh, so now we actually have that game. And we did play it once recently. And sadly, we all did really, really well. (laughs) It's a really good show. It it made being a nerd okay again. Oh, it's hilarious. uh, (laughs) And it's based in uh, Pasadena, which is pretty much where I grew up. So there's that. How about you, Rachel? Yeah. How about you, Lori? So I love Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> the uh, next new season it was just recently released. And of course I binge watched it and I'm all done and out and ready for another season. But I love Lily Tomlin. I always have ever since I was little. Um, so to see her acting in this kind of role with Jane Fonda, I just think that acting is great. I love the themes of aging and what that looks like and the fact that they're dating <laughs> in their 70s. Um, and then they've started a business now, and we won't go into what Which that business is. so entertaining, is. by the way. I mean, the business alone is worth watching it for. It really is. <laughs> the, but I mean, let's just say right now, Jane Fonda, does she not look amazing? How old is oh she? Oh, my gosh. She's incredible. Yeah, I she's in her 70s, right? 70s. It's like all that aerobics she did must have paid off or something. <laughs> oh. Lake Warmers. Yeah, I agree. I Definitely, that's a great, great show. Oh, my gosh. She's 79 years old. No way. Oh. 1937. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. I would have said maybe 71, 72. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And only because you know she's at least about that age, right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I don't want to stand next to her to be compared to. No. And, and Lily Tomlin is 77. So that's, they, that's pretty pretty amazing. They both look amazing. And I think it's really well written. They they do. I love I, I love the, the two of them together. Uh, I mean, I all too. the way back to the nine to five days. They need to throw in a little cameo with Dolly Parton and they've kind of <laughs> kind of sealed that deal. But who, by the way, yeah. is another pretty amazing woman. But uh so my pick was, is also following along on the Netflix theme. Um, you know, you guys know I love food. Uh, there's a series that's been there now, I think three, three, uh, seasons in, but it's called chef's table. And there are two that are, um, kind of, uh, global, a lot of them are in the U S but global. Then the other, there's a, a third one that's, uh, I think it's, uh, French specific, 
But um, I love it not just because these are some of the best restaurants in the world and the best chefs in the world, but they actually go into the stories behind the chefs. And, you know, chefs tend to be a fairly tormented group, I think, at times. Um, But just what people have been through, um, how passionate they are about something that is uh, a part of something we all literally do every day. Um, you know, eat and, and prepare food. And uh, it, it's uh, and, and they also go um, around the world. And, and it's interesting to see uh, what's going on in the food scene in, in so many different countries. So that that's my recommendation. I think there's three seasons out of that. But um, just some really and some great restaurants to try as well. Maybe that'll be my next list after I do music halls around the world. So um, nice. Very I have good. Made, made note a couple of new recommendations here for me. Yes, it's a good way to spend your weekend. Yes. Great. So that brings us to the end of episode number four, and we'll look forward to our next episode with, led by, by Lori Asbury. Good Lori, as opposed to bad Lori. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be looking forward to, to, to having you lead that one. So thank you guys Sounds for joining, good. and uh, thank you. Everybody has a great rest of the week, and we'll talk to you again in episode number five. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye.